Let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you that you are so good, you are so kind, and you are gracious. Father, we thank you for this time to come together to worship you through your word and through your truth. Father, help us to grasp and understand the great privileges that you have given us in Christ. That we might have a greater love, and a greater reverence, and greater awe for you. Help us, teach us, encourage us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And so, uh, good morning. I'll take a few minutes if you guys haven't seen me here before. My name is Michael Verbraska. Um, at first and foremost, I'd like to thank the elders for granting me the opportunity to speak here, uh, be able to teach this morning. I go to uh, Master's Seminary there, where some, many of you know, may know that Jason goes there. I go with him as well, too. And so part of the responsibilities that they asked me is to teach, to be involved in the local church, because that's kind of why I'm going to the seminaries, to learn how to teach and to preach and interpret God's word. And so they graciously, the elders graciously gave me the opportunity to be able to come to you and to be able to do that this morning. And so I thank them for that, and it's a great pri privilege and pleasure for me to be here with, with all of you guys this morning. And they also graciously allowed me to pick whatever topic I wanted to. So that was kind of nice. I appreciate that. Um, you know, I thought about my first inclination was to talk about the doctrine of election. But I said, you know what, that's too easy. So, <laughs> so I thought I would go somewhere else there. And uh, so I picked something. I thought that, you know, I went through the archives so that I didn't kind of repeat anything. But what could be something useful to all of us? that we can use, and that we should be using every day in our Christian life there. And so I came up with, uh, as you see if you, if you have your handouts there, the seven P's of prayer. So we're talking about prayer. Does everyone have a handout? If you don't have a handout, uh, raise your hand and we'll be able to, someone will be able to hand you the handout there. And so I said seven P's of prayer, and I don't know how much time I'll have. I'll hopefully get through all seven of them. But uh, I especially want to kind of spend some time on the first one because I think it's very important that we kind of have a better grasp, kind of understanding, hopefully develop a greater thankfulness and gratefulness for really what is a great privilege of prayer that each and every one of us has in Christ. And so I believe that prayer is one of our greatest yet most underutilized privileges that we have for Christians. If I were to ask all of you, please raise your hand to think if you think that you pray too much. Anybody? Anybody courageous enough to stand and raise their hand? So I think we all realize that prayer is essential and as vital that it is, is maybe not something that we should do, we, we do as much as we should, but yet it is commanded by us to pray. That is one of the fundamental disciplines that we have as Christians. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says that we are to pray without ceasing. So we should be constantly in prayer. 
I'm not saying that we should be locked up in our house and do nothing else but pray, but there should be the attitude or the atmosphere of continually praying to the Lord, continual relationship and communion with the Lord. And so I think sometimes we get caught up in so many other things in our Christian life, ministry, uh, service, evangelism, studying and reading the Bible. But then we, sometimes we can neglect some of the most basic, essential things, and one of those, I think, can be prayer, that we get so busy that even we neglect that great discipline or privilege that God has given us. And as kind of an illustration for you, I hope it comes across as an illustration. So I'm kind of a sports guy. I like to use sports illustrations and other things, but it works for anything. It can work for sports. It can work for discipline, music, piano, arts, any kind of thing that requires skill or practice. That in team sports, even individual sports or music or singing, that sometimes we know that the most successful people, or the most successful teams are not always the most talented or the most skilled, but it's the ones that many times do the fundamentals the best, right? If we're talking football, they're the, they're the ones that can maybe tackle the best, catch the ball, block. You may have the greatest plays in the world but if no one can catch the ball, no one can throw the ball, no one can block, all that, all that goes, goes to, to naught. It's, it doesn't do any good because they neglected the basic fundamentals. And so also I think in our Christian life that sometimes we can get away from that and we neglect the basic fundamentals. And one of those being prayer. And just like as whatever sport or piano playing, if you want to play the great I don't know what the word is. Who's a music person? Concertos, is that right? Concertos, right? You have to take time, play the scales, do all the things, all the basic things in order to advance to the bigger and the greater things. And I think as Christians, we all want to advance and do bigger and greater things, but yet sports or music, artistry, whatever it happens to be there, do we put the time in to do well and set a good foundation for the basics and the fundamentals so that we can advance and grow. Because it is hard work. It's not exciting, I would imagine, if you're a piano player, just to be doing the scales every day. If you're a football or basketball player, to shoot free throws over and over and over, constantly, constantly, constantly. But yet, it's that discipline, it's that devotion and the hard work that then allows us to grow and to advance to bigger and greater things, and I think we all desire to do that. And, you know, as I became uh, uh, a new Christian, and I'm reading about all these wonderful things, all these men and women of God that did all these wonderful things in ministry work and other, and uh, advancing the gospel and here and there, what made, what seemed to make them special? What was so special about them that they were able to do these great things. And if you go back, if you look at some of these people, such as Martin Luther, 
George Mueller, David Brainerd, John Hyde, who knew who was called, nicknamed the Praying Hyde, seemed the one thing that they had in common was they were all known as men and women of prayer. They were devoted to prayer. That's, that was the one thing that stuck, stood out above and beyond all other things. It wasn't necessarily that they were the smartest, the greatest speakers, the most charisma, but they spent their time alone with the Lord. And so here's a quote from uh, J.C. Ryle about the importance of prayer in the Christian life. He says, I believe that those who are not imminently holy pray little. When a man is once converted, his progress in holiness will be much in accord with his own diligence in the use of God's appointed means. And I confidently assert that the principal means by which most believers have become great in the church of Christ is the habit of diligent private prayer. And that prayer is one of those things that the only way we can learn and become proficient in it is to actually do it. And not only do it, but to do it ready, regularly so we can develop the habit of prayer. So uh, just to uh, illustrate and make an example to, uh, for you about prayer and, let's say, losing weight, many people like to you know, go diets and do the yo-yo diet. But if you, for those who are serious about dieting, how much progress will you make if you just diet on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday? Or if you were to diet one week or two weeks straight, and then you neglect dieting for a month? How much progress do you think you would make? Or what little progress you would make would disappear? Right? I think it's the same also with prayer there. We can be good for Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or good for a week or two, and then kind of fall off. Again, how much, how much are we going to progress? How much are we going to grow? How much do what we've gained, or progress we've made, we lose because we uh, fail to stick to the regular habit and devotion to prayer? So that was kind of a long introduction to prayer before we get into the Word, but I wanted to set kind of the... Remember, uh, Pastor Dan had his uh, theological pyramid there in the baseline and the foundation. So I think that's kind of where we need to kind of wanted to set the foundation here, what I wanted to try and cover this morning, that prayer is important and it is an essential part. And the first one here is, if you have your handouts there, we're going to start filling in the blanks there. So I want to give you guys some work so they don't just sit there. I'm trying to keep you guys involved, make you do a little writing there. So, um, is the first, first fill in the blank is the privilege of prayer. The privilege of prayer. And so I do would like to take a little bit of time to spend on this because I think it is so important that we understand that prayer is a privilege. A privilege given to us by the Lord. And you know, and if you think about it, when we're, people, when we're given things, how much do we, we don't quite esteem it as much when we're giving something, right? We kind of like, ah, that's really nice, and I appreciate it. But we don't esteem it as much as if we work for something, right? If we work for something and earn something, we much more readily esteem it and um, value it. But here... We, as we all know, that prayer is not something that any of us earn or deserve, 
but by the grace of God, through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we'll see here, we are given the great privilege of prayer and access to God. So the privilege of prayer. So in the Old Testament, only the high priest, right, would go into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. And this was how many times a year? Just once. It wasn't like he camped out there, but that one time for the Day of Atonement, right, he would go in and uh, make atonement for the people there. And yet continually, who was the ones that were continually sacrificing animals uh, for the daily, daily sacrifices each and every day? Who was doing that? The priests, right? So it was only the priests then that could draw near and close to the presence of God. In fact, uh, think of the exclusivity of the high priest. In order to be a high priest, what were the qualifications or what were the requirements to be a high priest? Think a little bit. I know there's some Bible readers in here, and you guys know, so think about it. Okay, certain family, right? Certain, what else? Have to be what? Yes, yes. Levites, what, what else? They had to be Jewish. That's very simple, right? They had to be Jewish. What else? Simple, but it was a requirement. Could we ourselves then have been priests back then at that time? Not unless you're Jewish, right? Who else? What else? Thank you, Pastor. <laughs> had to be a male. Ladies, you couldn't be priests as much as you wanted to. You couldn't be a priest. You couldn't be a, uh, a, a high priest. What else? I am not sure about that. But they did, but they had to do what? Wear what? They had to wear the special priestly garment. That's right. So there's many things that separated them and to show the exclusivity of the access to God. That it was only, again, just that one time per year. And only the high priest and that only the constant ministering and being in the presence of the Lord was only by the priest. The average person had no access to God, correct? They were they could bring the sacrifices outside the tabernacle, but going inside and drawing near to God, there was there wasn't it, that particular physical closeness to God. So that was in the Old Testament. So now we're moving into the New Testament. Go open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter nine. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. If I could have a volunteer read verses, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Someone be brave. Thank you, Joe. 1 through 8.
Thank you. So we see here about that there's a separation here, right, between that once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest passed through the curtain into God's presence, that here between the outer and the inner, between the holy and the most holy place, we had this curtain. And behind that curtain then, what was behind that curtain? What did that represent? Who should I say represent behind that curtain? God, right? The presence of God. And so that was set apart, very holy. So holy, in fact, that only one person, once a year, could go in to be in God's presence. And that this curtain was a barrier then between a holy God and a sinful people. And we see that the use of the blood so that the priest had to offer a sacrifice for sin. And that the, interesting that the ceremonies of the Day of the Atonement did not bring access to God, but it covered the sins. And the purpose was to accomplish reconciliation between man and God, so that then the priest could then be able to go into the presence of the Lord. And so do we see a foreshadowing here of, as, as we read in the scriptures, that it has to be the blood Right? The only who goes in once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. That somewhere there's a blood and a cleansing and a washing that allows the high priest to get in to the presence of the Lord and to minister. But this again was limited in the fact that it was once a year and that it was and for ordinary people, they, they lack this access to God. And so God had ordained the formation of the priesthood um, and establishment of the ritual worship of the tabernacle and later the temple for the establishment of the priest then to do the ministering for the people and to worship and to be in the presence of God. But then we have the coming of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. The promised Messiah comes along and fulfills God's plans for him, which leads him to the cross. And now, I ask you, what events happen there at Christ's death? Come on, I know you guys read the Bible. <laughs> thank you I was hoping it was going to be four or five down if you would think of the other things but yes the curtain was torn if you look at uh, Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one, it says and behold the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split that Christ came along and for once and for all, he tore the curtain, and now he allowed access to God through his blood once and for all. So we see that you have a blank there, I think it says, underneath uh, Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one. that should say curtain. And the curtain is what separated the holy place from the most holy place symbolized the separation between God and humanity. 
And the tearing of the curtain when Jesus Christ was crucified symbolized the end of this separation and gave access into God's presence for all believers. That upon that cross there, just amazing, there's just that one little verse there in Matthew 27, 51, and what a great circumstance or change of circumstances for all of us that those who years ago in the Old, Te Old Testament would be outside the temple never getting access, direct access to God. Now, we all, every single one of us, Christians, those who are saved, those who are born again, can now come to God at any time. They have access in the morning, in the evening, in the night, whenever we have the desire to go to him because of what Christ has done to open up the veil for all of us. And uh, just to let you know, the curtain there, to give you a quick definition, if you want to write that down there, just uh, symbolize the separation between a holy God and sinful humanity, and that the, ended the, the tearing of the curtain ended this separation and gave us access into God's presence. And just to reinforce what a great privilege it is there. If you're in Hebrews, you just turn one to the next chapter, chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Could I have a volunteer to read that, please? Go ahead, Matt. Thank you. So therefore, brothers, sisters, Christians, we now have confidence to enter the holy places because of what? Because of Christ, by the blood of Jesus. Just as it said in, back in chapter 9 there, it was the blood that washes and cleanses us. And so we have confidence to enter the holy places. It says here that we have confidence, not arrogance, but confidence. And we have confidence, a trust in Christ, trust in him that what he has done has opened up the veil for us, that we don't come with any exaggerated sense of self thinking that we can come to God in our own self-righteousness, our own righteousness, but we come and have access to God because of what Christ has done for us. That's amazing to me. I don't know about you, but I find that a great privilege that Christ not only died, give us eternal life, but now each and every one of us can go directly to God. There is no curtain between any of us. And we know that when we go in prayer, that we go directly to God, directly to God, the God, that, the ruler and the maker and the creator of the heavens and the earth, the God who created all of us, that we can go directly and we know that with, because of Christ that we can literally, we can speak to the king of the universe and that he wants to hear from us. That's even more amazing, that he wants to hear from his children. And so why would we not then take advantage of that great privilege? Why would we not then be so much more thankful for Jesus to be able to allow us 
that great privilege that we have in prayer. And so in verse 21, it says, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, I think here is a command. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And not only that, again, he told, as I opened up there, First Thessalonians says, pray without ceasing. Here he says, let us draw near. Draw near in sincerity. Draw near in humility. Draw near in thankfulness and in gratitude. Not as we like, but as how Christ has commanded us to come to him with um, humility. Any questions or comments? So I want to look at one more verse there. Uh, Hebrews, go back to chapter 4. Verses 14 through 16. Volunteer again. Go ahead, thank you. So again, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus. I think here's a little comparison between the Old Testament priests and Christ. For the Old Testament priests, their, their living and their sanctuary was earth, where is Christ? In the heavenly realms. How much better priests do we have in Christ than we do in the Old Testament priests? They needed the blood. They needed to be washed. They needed to be cleansed. They were here on the earth with us. Whereas Christ, our Savior and our Messiah, is from heaven. And his, he doesn't need anyone's blood. It's his blood that cleanses us. It's his blood that washes us. It's his blood and his sacrifice that tore the veil for us. So then, how much more shall we draw? As again, it says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Again, another time he says we are to draw near to God. That we may receive mercy and find grace in the help in the time of need. That, you know, we don't go to, despite what uh, many churches and many pastors might tell you today, tell you today we don't go to God to find uh, Mercedes and gold, but we come to find mercy and grace, which is infinitely more worth, worthful than any of these temporary things, that we come to him to receive that mercy and grace and to come there confidently because Christ was the once and all complete sacrifice for us. And so each Christian has direct, unlimited, and unrestricted access to God because of Christ. At any time, any place, any language, a Christian can come to the living God, to the living God who never sleeps or slumbers, a God who's never too tired or busy to hear from his children, 
that he's always on guard night and day. So my question to you is, why do you not pray? Should we not pray more? Why would we fail to use the great benefits and the riches and the treasures that Christ gave to us through his great sacrifice? The hope that uh, in this way that be a kind of a motivation or exhortation for have a greater thankfulness, greater, uh, more gratefulness for this great privilege that we have in prayer and all that it costs Christ, that we have so much more than just salvation, that because of him, we can pray. Because of him, he hears our needs. Because of him, we can be comforted. Because of him, we can be in his presence. That there is no separation from us anymore, except the one that we make when we fail to pray and to come to the Lord. That sometimes the reluctance to pray and the timidity of our requests for ourselves and others suggests a lack of gratitude for this access into God's presence. We may be critical of the formality and deadness of prayers in other religions, yet all too often their devotees put us to shame in their dedication and regularity. And we know there's many false religions out there, but when some of them pray regularly. They lock themselves away and pray for hours and hours and hours, but we know it's useless, it's worthless. They're praying to idols. They're praying to nothing, but yet, think of the effort, think of the discipline, think of the devotion that they have. I mean, think of, you know, I think of Islam there. Five times a day, they're called to pray. How many times do we pray a day? I've been to, uh, maybe I shouldn't say this, I've been to a Buddhist temple. As a class project, I wasn't there to do anything, but as a class project... So it just had nothing to do with spiritual or anything, but just to go and observe. And they took time, and they just stopped. They said, let's pray. I mean, they're, again, they're praying to an idol, but 20, 30 minutes. How many, how many times a day do we go to the Lord, 20 or 30 minutes to be in prayer with him? Um, and we know that we're going to the living God. We're not going to an idol. We're going to a God that can change circumstances, that can strengthen us that can equip us, that can give us peace and give us joy. So if you don't hear anything else from me, please pray. Be disciplined and pray. Be thankful for the great privilege that we have and to use it, to not let it fall by the wayside. Um, and so one final thing just to wrap up on the privilege of prayer. I know I spent a lot of time on this. I might not get, get through the rest, but I just wanted to just hopefully in my failing way bring out what a great and awesome privilege we really do have in prayer. And so I want you to, I do want to ask this question. I want you to, to think. Um, and if I'm wrong, I know Pastor Dan will correct me, but I think the scriptures will bear me out here. Um, so in the Old Testament, who had access to God? Who only? The priests. So now Christ dies on the cross. The veil is, the curtain is torn. And now we all have access to God, correct? Has God changed his mind of who now has access to him? Who says, think, 
Has God changed now who can come into his presence? Before it was priests only. Thank you. That's excellent. We're all priests. That God hasn't changed his mind of who can come into his presence. Again, I wanted to point that out to say how much more confident we can have the richness and the consistency of God's word and the depth of God's word. And we know that as a God that never changes. And we see how, that, how he consistently carries all his words and his truth through, that he hasn't changed who has access to him. It's still only priests. But he's just changed now who those priests are. Who do we say before were the, could only be priests? Jews and the man, the certain family. And now all, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're a certain tribe or not, we all have access into God's presence. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Do I have any questions or comments there? As we're all royal priests here. Okay, number two then is the priority of prayer. Number two is the priority of prayer. And so probably thankfully for all of you, this is going to go fast. Um, priority of prayer. So we look to our great example of Jesus Christ. If we're to imitate him, what is his attitude in prayer? I read several sources that said that in the Gospels, that there are at least 30 verses where it talks about Jesus praying. And we have uh, Matthew 14, 23. I'll just read that. And after he had dismissed the crowds, that is Jesus, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. If you, went, if you were to go back and see, Jesus had been busy ministering to the people there. And so we see that he didn't let busyness or travel or anything interfere with his time in prayer. Mark 1.35, after rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And so now we see the discipline and the devotion, and even he didn't let sleep interfere with prayer. Luke 5.16, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. He just got done healing a leopard, and crowds came, came to him to be, wanting to be healed and all that work that he would, could have done. But what did he do? He withdrew from them. So all the service and help and service and the healing, he didn't let that interview, interfere with his time to pray. Luke 6, 12. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And if you read this, next verse, I think it's verse, next verse 13 says, now he chose his disciples. So we see that in all the busyness and the big, great decisions that he had to make, what was the first thing he did before he decided? He went and he prayed. And as a side note there, he continued all night in prayer. Uh, and so we see Christ is setting the example and the priority for us in prayer. I think of God in the flesh came to this earth and he put, of all the people you would think that wouldn't need prayer, right? But yet... He set the great example of the priority 
that we are to have in prayer because he himself lived out that priority, going and finding and seeking places to go. No matter what was going on, he went alone to be with his father so that then he could go and he could be able to do the ministry and the work that he was called to do. And I have a quote here from uh, E.M. Bounds in his book on prayer. It says, To Christ Jesus, prayer occupied no secondary place, but was exacting and paramount, a necessity, a life, the satisfying of a restless yearning and a preparation for heavy responsibilities. The dispensation of the person of Jesus Christ was a dispensation of prayer. A synopsis of his teaching and practice of prayer was that men ought always to pray and not to faint. And now we see Christ was very much committed to the discipline of prayer. So again, if Christ is our great example and we're supposed to imitate, then are we not supposed to be men and women of prayer? Should not prayer be a priority in all of our lives? And you may say, well, that was great. You know, that was, that was Jesus. Jesus is perfect, and, you know, there's, he's God. But you know what? There were many men that we could use as examples that we can draw motivation and encouragement from. That I mentioned before, uh, Martin Luther was known as a, very, as a man of prayer. And what he, the way he's, he made prayer a priority can be an encouragement for us because here's a man just like us and all our frailties and weaknesses and lack of desire sometimes. But this is what Martin Luther said this about prayer. He says, I have so much to do today that I'm going to need to spend three hours in prayer in order to be able to get it all done. That's amazing. If we, if today most of us, me included, if I had a lot to do today, probably what's one of the first things we would say, probably say to ourselves, you know what? I got so much to do today. I don't think I have time to pray today to be able to get all this done. Whereas his thought process was exactly the opposite, that he shows us what we need to view prayer as the most powerful and efficient use of our time to make that the most priority, that when we pray, then we are able to do the things that God has called us to do in ministry, work, family, whatever might happens to be there, that we look at prayer as a means by which to accomplish those goals. So we need to make, just make a time, a set time, and then stick with it. That would be my encouragement, to set a time and begin to do it regularly and habitually before, maybe even before the day starts. If you know you have a big day, I'm not sure if we can all spend three hours in prayer, but spend time with the Lord. I mean, here's Martin Luther. We know with the Reformation, if anybody probably had an excuse to cut prayer out, he was quite the opposite. In fact, he was devoted to it, and probably because of his devotion to the prayer and time with the Lord, the Lord was able to use him mightily. Any questions or comments about prayer, priority of prayer? Three, next blank is promptness of prayer. So priority and then promptness, kind of similar but different. The promptness is how quickly do we run to prayer? When you run across issues and problems and difficulties, is your first thought to pray or to act and then start to do something first before we pray? We already saw here in uh, Luke 6 there that 
Jesus had a great decision to make about the disciples, and the first thing he did was he went to the Lord in prayer. I can remember as a, uh, as a new Christian, we, I went to a Bible study group. It was very godly man. God was so gracious to me when I was a new Christian to put me in, in the presence with him and his wife. They were wonderful men and women of God. And I used to think it was the strangest thing that people would come into our group and they would share about this problem or difficulty and he would, either him or her would just stop. they say, stop. Let's just stop and let's pray. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And I just thought, well, that's kind of, it doesn't sound right. But you know what? Now I can really look back and understand and appreciate the wisdom there was in that, that you know, before we did or acted or said anything, that most immediate thing was to go to the Lord in prayer and to lift the prayers up to him. And we have, and it's quite biblical, as you see here, that it's very biblical that many responses that people had words to immediately go to the Lord in prayer. Second uh, Kings uh, chapter 19 verses 14 through 15. If you guys can turn there and I get a volunteer to read that. So Hezekiah here got the letter, challenged God. He had the um, Sennacherib getting ready to come and threaten and destroy Jerusalem. He could have made military arrangements. He could have went and went to his counselors and his military generals. What should we do? What should we do? But what was his first thing that he did? He went to the Lord in prayer that he prayed. And here's a good example because the next chapter over, if you're still there in 2 Kings in chapter 20, Verses 1 and 2. Someone can read that. So again, Hezekiah faced with would imagine a devastating bit of news if you were to find out, hey, you're getting ready to die. You could have went to the doctors. You could have went and done, med done all kinds of medicine and treatment or whatever they do in those days. But again, immediately, what did he do? He just simply turned his head and began to pray to the Lord. Uh, Nehemiah 1.4 says, go into Nehemiah, Nehemiah, I'll read this. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And again, the reaction of Nehemiah was when he heard the news about uh, Jerusalem and the walls were down, his first inclination was to pray. And Nehemiah 2.4 says, Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And this is interesting in the fact that if you read the verse before there, or as he says, the king said to me, what are you requesting? Before he answered the king, that his first response was to pray. So, I mean, there's, in seconds, 
there before he responded to the king the promptness that he put on prayer that before he even answered the king that he went to the Lord in prayer which tells us what a priority that he had put on prayer even before that if he wasn't a man of prayer he would have never have thought the first thing to do would be to pray again the atmosphere or the habit of prayer that we have that's developed as all of these men show our first response should be prayer to God each, each instance shows the promptness and immediacy of prayers that Nehemiah before the king was literally taking place in just a few seconds so when we hear bad news do we get uh, other when we get bad news is the first thing that we do is to pray to God that should be our response for all for all of us number four persistence in prayer and yeah, we're gonna run out of time here number four is persistence in prayer the Lord entreats us to be persistent in prayer and not to give up easily even to be bold with reverence in our prayers and we have the Old Testament example of uh, Abraham, in Genesis uh, chapter 18. That's the first book of the Bible, if you guys just wanted to know there. So that's easy to find. Chapter 18. Uh, uh, let me just read here brief, quickly. Um, so the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but... Abraham stood, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And then verse 23, this is what I want to present to you then. Then Abraham drew near and said, where was that, where did we hear that from before? In Hebrews, right? Hebrews 9, Hebrews 4. They told us that we should do what? Draw near. And here, even here, Abraham he says he drew near to God and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that your righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So here we see the persistency of Abraham in his prayer. He did it reverently, and he did it um, with great compassion, with great dedication, and he's an example for us. 
And I found one of the com com commentators said this. I hadn't thought about it, but it's true. It says, Abraham ceased asking before God ceased giving. And that he did. Who's not to say that he could have kept going and maybe to five or to three or to two. And the Sodom and Gomorrah could have been a different story. And so it's an example for us of Abraham's shameless, bold persistence, which I don't have time, but I'll just point out to you, um, which illustrates what Jesus taught the disciples in Luke chapter 11 and chapter 18. In Luke 11, 5 through 13, the persistent neighbor. And in Luke 18, uh, the persistent widow in verses 1 through 8. So I encourage you, in your, before you do your prayer time this evening, right, that you maybe can look at that and read those and see how, what Jesus talks about, how we're to be persistent in prayer. Uh, and as an encouragement, too, James 4, 2, I think you have that in the notes, says, you do not have because you do not ask. And we need to ask the Lord. And we receive because we do ask. And so I'll fill up... Um, Oh, there's one, one quick story. I got time, and then I'll fill in the rest of the fill in the blanks for you guys. But there's a story there talking about the persistence of prayer there. Um, my wife will be able to appreciate this, I think. So um, there's a story here. It says, the earliest convert, African converts to Christianity were earnest and regular, persistent in their private devotions. So if you can imagine, you have to imagine being in Africa. You're out in the jungle, the forest. So if you've ever been there, you know, some, some places there's some really high, high grass. And so it says, so then each one reportedly had separate spots in the thicket where he would go to pray and pour out his heart to God. So if you can imagine, they go out behind their huts and they walk through the tall grass. And so they begin to wear down the grass and have a nice path out to their place of prayer. And so these paths would lead to the, uh, to where they would pray, and they become distinctly marked. It would be clear to them their path to where they would go to pray. But then it says, when any one of the, when anyone began to decline in their devotions, it was apparent to others. Why? Because the grass would grow up and overrun their walkway to the pathway, so it would be clear clear to all people. And then they would kindly remind him, saying, "Brother, the grass grows on your path yonder." So wouldn't that be nice if we had some kind of grass that others could call us to account and say, brother or sister, your, your grass grows on your path yonder, just to kind of encourage us to be devoted and persistent in our prayer. So uh, number five then would be if we had time, we would have got to private prayer. And we are to pray to God in secret. Uh, the very familiar verse that you guys are all there with Matthew 6 6 and when you pray you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others truly I say to you they have received their reward but when you pray go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you right there is no glory there is no riches in private prayer because it's just between you and God. No one else can see you. But you have a great promise from the Lord that he will reward those who do such things. Um, 
And then quickly, too, I thought a very good example. So people may say, well, you know, I don't have time to pray. I don't have time, you know, especially I'm thinking of uh, the ladies who are home, with home, caring for the home and have many children. And we know the busyness of that and trying to separate and get to quiet time alone. Well, you know what? I hope with this example, ladies, you will have no excuse to find a pri private prayer. You will be without excuse. There's a great example here. It was said that John and Charles Wesley's mother, Susanna Wesley, who was married and lived on a farm with 10 children, um, told her children that when she puts her apron up over her head, she was not to be disturbed because she was praying. And if you think about the impact that she had, she raised John and Charles Wesley and the great impact they had on Christianity, then, you know, not just ladies, but all of us, there's no excuse. Just throw that apron up over your head and pray to the Lord. And he honored it. He honored it. Uh, okay, number six. Uh, dare I say that, that word, prayer and fasting. So I kind of had hoped that we would get into that, but we, I ran short on time. But prayer and fasting. Uh, just uh, Daniel 9.3 says that I turn my face to the Lord God seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashings. So yes, yes, there is a time for fasting. And uh, the Lord calls us to pray, to fast when appropriate. For even he set the example. He fasted for 40 days, right? Uh, and he reminds us, uh, and when you fast, do not look gloomy in Matthew 6. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And lastly, number seven is public prayer. Public prayer. And then as a conclusion, to wrap all this up, I think, Matt, you're going to do the announcements. So our conclusion is, uh, and I think it's your last page, where it says, uh, Greg Nichols says this about a prayerless person. I'll leave you with this. A prayerless person is ungrateful because he does not thank God. Self-righteous because he does not confess his sins to God. Self-centered because he does not ask God to bless other people. Presumptuous because he does not pray even for his daily needs. Irreverent because he does not praise God nor pray for his kingdom to come. And unfriendly to God because prayerlessness evidences that he does not enjoy being with God. Let's pray. Lord Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the great privilege of prayer. Oh Father, I pray that these words would come into all of our hearts and we would embrace the great gift and the privilege of prayer and to use it, to use it for our good, good for our souls, good for others, good for you, Father. Good to see your kingdom grow. Good to see others come to know you. And, and also that we would be eager to spend that time that we might better know you, to better love you, to better worship you, to better obey you, and to love you. Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.